Hello, and thanks for checking in for Golf Smarter Mulligans number five. I'm Fred Green. This week, we talked to Seth Glasgow, Director of Instruction for the Southpaw Golf Academy. If you're a left-handed golfer, then you know how hard it is to get instruction that focuses on lefties. But southpawgolfacademy.com could be for you. Golf Smarter Mulligans is supported by twoguyswithgolfballs.com, offering premium used golf balls at a fraction of the cost of new ones. Unless money is no object, you may want to consider playing the premium quality used balls you can buy at twoguyswithgolfballs.com. Picking up lost golf balls is one way, but if you want some assurance that the used ball you're playing has been inspected, sanitized, and graded for quality, then spend half the price of new balls and purchase from twoguyswithgolfballs.com. Golf Smarter and Golf Smarter Mulligans listeners get an additional 10% off every order every time with a coupon code GOLFSMARTER. So the next time one of your playing partners hits one in the water, instead of laughing, tell them about twoguyswithgolfballs.com. The discount offer expires April 1, 2020. Mulligans is also brought to you by autoslash.com. Autoslash.com is the rental car booking service that will save you time, hassle, and money. Autoslash.com applies every available coupon code to your next car rental, including coupons you're eligible for based on your various memberships. Then they track your reservation until the day you pick up the car, and they email you when they find a better rate, sometimes daily. The average user saves 30% off from any other booking site. And Autoslash.com is completely free. So bookmark it now on your browser and use it for your next car rental so that you can get the best rate possible from the completely free autoslash.com. So now we'll get to Seth Glasgow and we'll start about the inequity there is for left-handed golf instruction. Fred, we have uh, between 2.5 and 3 million left-handed golfers in this country and not one single left-handed golf academy. And that's and about to change, isn't it? That is. It's changing as we speak. Uh, we are forming, we, I say, uh, we, that is myself and Nick Compass, who is my, uh, my partner, who's also a left-handed instructor. We have a staff of uh, four other lefty teachers that we have um, appointed that we will uh, be the first ever Southpaw Golf Academy and accommodate uh, our lefty brothers and sisters out there who have lived in the shadows of the right-handed golfers for eons. And um, it was nice of you to mention Mr. Weir and Mr. Mickelson, who I may, if I can, point out, uh, you know, have three of the last uh, eight major championships that have been played. So um, you got to rub it in, don't you? Yeah, I do. I do. It's about time somebody did. We've had very few flags to wave, Fred, in the past, and it's nice to be able to wave this now with my left hand. You can't see me waving the flag, but I'm waving it with my left arm. And so this is um, not only four left-handed golfers, but all your instructors are also left-handed? It is four lefties by lefties, yes, indeed. All the instructors are left-handed. All the printed materials that gets passed out that get passed out during the sessions are printed in lefties. Uh, when we print right arm, we mean our right arm. It's not uh, like every other instructional segment that's been written in the history of golf where we lefties have to flip everything around and make it apply to us. Now, it's not to say that we're not sharp enough to do that. It just gets a little tiresome, that's all. 
We just like to see things written directly to us for a change. Um, the, the demo equipment that will be available for the lefties will, will be there and, and ready to go, all shining and gleaming and left-handed. Um, the, the video system that we will use for video analysis will be set up with a left-handed swing in mind. Uh, everything will be left-handed as it pertains to the, the academy, and um, it's just going to be a nice, refreshing change of pace for our left-handed uh, golfers. Okay, now for anybody who's listening right now that is right-handed, don't turn this off because we're going to get into information that applies to both lefties and righties, but we're going to lean to the left on this one, correct? Well, we can, and, and you know, an, an argument can be made that it really doesn't matter what side the teacher stands on. The, the, the fundamentals of the golf swing are identical, whether you, you stand on the right side of the ball or the left side of the ball. It's like a, a pitcher in baseball, a lefty pitcher and a righty pitcher. Their mechanics are the same. It's just coming out of a different arm. Um, but the, the the stigma that we have um, have had to deal with and live with throughout our lives, um, uh, we're starting to, to to bust that wall down a little bit, and um, we are becoming more accepted. Uh, the junior golfers, and I'll I'll just put the, the category strictly at high school golf. There's been nearly a thirty percent increase over the last decade in left-handed golfers at the high school level. Why? Because the the tired old adage of if you're left-handed you should be playing right-handed because your strong side leads is starting to wither um, and I don't know where that came from I have my own theory on it I think it was because left-handed equipment was so hard to come by that the uh, the people that were selling equipment were trying to move the product that they already had in stock which was all right-handed so this whole big fable about it's better to play um, as a as a left-handed person, it's better to play golf right-handed. I mean, you, you, all you got to do is is flip that around on them, and you and you blow that out of the water. If that was truly the case, then why aren't right-handed people playing left-handed? So I think we're 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 starting to cross over a little bit into a little bit more acceptance, and uh, in so doing, we are uh, seeing some more uh, equipment companies. Uh, TaylorMade, for instance, is is our equipment sponsor, and they really got their arms around the left-handed. Uh, player uh, Mike Weir I get it place for them and uh, and uh, they're gonna they're gonna champion our cause that's awesome yeah let's go ahead and tell people that you can find information about this Academy at southpawgolfacademy.com yes you can and where are you guys based we're based in Las Vegas we have sites in Southern California Chicago Michigan Northern Cal and Arizona fabulous and growing rapidly growing like. rapidly that's right awesome. as we speak I've managed over 20 years of teaching to um, play both ends against the middle very successfully. I've managed to convince my left-handed students that they should be taking instruction from me because we stand on the same side of the ball and we speak the same language. Then I turn right around and tell my righty students that they need to take lessons from me because we have a mirror image that um, we can create that right-handed instructors can't create with their right-handed students. So, you know, I probably just let the cat out of the bag there um, and uh, people are going to immediately see through my facade but uh it's it's worked well for 20 years i've managed to convince both sides of the the ball that uh i'm the guy they need to come and see actually that's kind of interesting because i know when i'm working with an instructor he's got to stand to my side versus standing in front of me and it's so much easier to look at him when he's standing in front well, of me. all kidding aside it is a benefit it's a huge sure. benefit to create the mirror image i mean it it it, it does it can 
replace video if you don't have video available to you. Because the visual part of the learning process is so huge. I mean, that's the first mode of learning that we employ as, as infants. You don't, your mom and dad didn't teach you how to walk by saying, okay, Freddie, now right foot, left foot, right foot, left foot. No, you, you laid there and you looked around, you saw everybody walking around, you said, hey, that, that looks kind of cool, I think I'll try that. Well, it was the visual prompt that got you to, to try to stand up and, and emulate what you're seeing. And that's the same thing we've seen with golf. You, you can teach golf and play golf and learn golf without the, the benefit of video analysis or the visual. But it, if you do have the benefit of seeing what you're trying to create with your, with your movements or your club, it just accelerates the process. This is really interesting. Uh, and I'm so glad that you've created this niche. I think this is uh, something that's needed. Well, I do too. And then you got you're looking at one in twelve golfers in this country play left-handed, and one in eight golfers in Canada play left-handed. So when you when you average that out in in North America, we're looking at one in ten. And it's just amazing to me that the year 2006, there is we are the first ever left-handed golf academy to to come to the market. It's uh, I find that a little bit odd, but uh, I'm also very glad that that's the case. Oh, yeah. Well, listen, it's all about creating a niche. That's right. But I wanted to talk to you as an instructor today. You're a PGA instructor. I am a, yes, certified golf instructor indeed. Okay. And I want to ask you about things that um, are problems for all of us. Uh, And one of the things you and I discussed earlier is getting in your way, being your own worst enemy on the course. How do we avoid that? Whether you're right-handed or left-handed. Well, um, we, we deal with something in golf that uh, most other sports don't deal with, and that is the conscious thought. Um, the, the, the only two sports that I've found to, to be comparable uh, in that respect would be tennis and basketball. And both, in both, I'm talking about serving a tennis ball and shooting a foul shot in basketball. When you see a player standing there at the foul line, um, it's the closest thing we have in sports to to what we see our our brothers and sisters on the tour doing on a weekly basis, and that is, the ball is is static, the ball has stopped moving, play has stopped, the time clock has stopped, all eyes are on the player at the foul line, and that and serving a tennis ball are really the only two times you're going to find those all those circumstances uh, coming together at once, other than the aforementioned golf. So to your, to your question, we have to deal with, as we stand over our ball, a ball that's lying there motionless. We are forced to initiate the motion. Nothing will get in the way of athletics faster than tension. And nothing creates tension in the body quicker than a, a fast-moving conscious mindset. When you're standing over your ball and you're thinking, okay, there's out-of-bounds on the right and there's water on the left and there's a big yawning bunker in front of the, the, the green and there's, there's, it's dead behind the green and you think all these thoughts um, that create tension, then you're probably going to make a bad golf swing. So to your point, getting in our own way, we've got to figure out a way to keep the mind quiet. And I've never heard it said better than Davis Love II, who's Davis's father, who was a fantastic teacher, and I was lucky enough to, to be able to spend some time with uh, when I was with the Golf Digest schools. But he said it better than anyone I've ever heard. He says, you've got to, to make the mind quiet so the body can perform. So having a really, really um, ingrained pre-shot routine would be the first order of business. Uh, there was a great book written some years ago called The Inner Game of Tennis by a, a writer uh, by the name of Timothy Galway. He ended up writing The Inner Game of Golf um, 
subsequent to that because of the commercial success that he had with the tennis book. But he didn't know as much about golf as he knew about tennis. So he made a few pretty critical mistakes, and uh, he, he lost a little credibility there. But one of his points um, in the inner game of tennis was taking yourself out of your conscious mind and, and playing in your subconscious. And if we could apply that to golf, uh, we'd have a lot less tension in our bodies, and we'd end up making better golf swings. I get asked this question on a daily basis. How come I can hit it so well on the range, and I hit it so poorly on the golf course? Well, your mindset is different. When you're standing there in the practice tee, you've got a whole big pile of balls in front of you, you got a wide open expanse of, of uh, target area to hit towards. It really doesn't matter where your ball goes. Ultimately, there's no penalty for hitting it sideways. Uh, flip that coin over, and when you get on the golf course, you got one ball lying there. You got a skinny little fairway that's got trees on both sides, and maybe water on one and a bunker on the other. All of a sudden, your target begins to, to get smaller and smaller. So, guess what? Your tension level increases. When your tension level increases, your golf swing leaves you. And that is the, the main reason why a, a good, solid pre-shot routine is so important. There's not a successful player on any tour or at any level that doesn't completely rely on their pre-shot routine. And if you watch a tour event on the weekend, you will see that routine. It starts from behind the ball, invariably, and you'll watch the player go through the same amount of steps, um, waggles, practice swings, looks at the target, shuffles with the feet. They've, there's even players out there who've, who've managed to take the same amount of breaths from when they step, when they start their process into their routine. As soon as they make the step towards the golf ball, they take the same amount of inhale and exhale breaths before every single shot, if you can believe that. And what it does is it puts your mind in the back seat and it lets your body respond to the circumstances at hand, and that is hitting the shot to the target. So that would be the first order of business is establish a really good pre-shot routine. And then what I try to help my students do is add um, components to that routine that are um, individual or unique to you. In other words, Fred, if you're a left-to-right player, you, you like to hit fades because I assume you're a right-handed guy, right? I am. So you're going to turn your ball left to right. You're going to hit a fade off the tee. I and, wish. Okay. Well, <laughs> in a perfect world, you'd hit a little power fade out there, start it down the left side, and cut it right into the middle. Yeah, right. Well, what we would suggest is that you position your ball towards the right part of the tee block, aim to a spot down the left side, and let your ball curve into the middle of the fairway. Well, as you stand behind your ball, you're going to draw a line from your golf ball out, out to your starting spot. You'll find an a intermediate target. It's not like I'm... Um, anything's revolutionary here. It's, uh, we've been talking about it for 100 years. But find a spot that you can see directly in front of your ball with your peripheral vision that if your ball starts directly over that spot, it will take on the correct shape that you have, have pictured in your mind and it will find your target. So the, let me ask you a question. So, And you're talking about when you get behind the ball mm-hmm. is to create, I guess it's kind of like bowling. You don't want to aim at the pins. You want to aim at the dots on the lane, right? Yeah, the really good bowlers don't. Don't they look at the pins and then uh, as they start their motion, they look their eyes cut downward to the the spot that they'd like to start their ball, and they've all they've all got a really uh, predictable amount of spin to their shots. Now, if we're speaking to the masses um, that play golf um, in the military fashion, where it's left, right, left, right, left, right, and there's real, there's no real pattern to the shots, then you almost have to aim down the middle and, and hope that there's not as, uh, as much curvature one way or the other to, to actually leave the fairway. But if you, once you establish a pattern 
uh, a shot pattern, then you can play to that. And if you got a 30-yard slice on every shot you hit, there's nothing wrong with that. You aim 30 yards left to where you want it to go, and you swing. It's, it's the, the problem is when you don't know which direction it's going to go off the face, and at, at that point I would suggest you go see your, your local PGA professional and get yourself straightened out. Once you do and you have a consistent pattern, then you need to, to marry that and you need to really adhere to it and, and, uh, and play to it. So establishing that pre-shot routine and establishing that intermediate target will take your mind out of your backswing and put it on the target. So accepting the fact that you slice the ball is okay. Wow. It's, That's a revelation in itself. Well, it's, it's this whole era that we're in of this, this model swing and this, everything has to be perfect. I, it's just, it, it really is disquieting to me that there's people out there who don't have model bodies that are pursuing a model swing. It's a, it's a futile effort. What I like to do, Fred, is I like to help people find a swing that fits their body shape, their flexibility issues, their their prior athletic uh, experience, a zillion different variables, so that when you get on the course, you can play like Fred. I don't want Fred out there trying to play like Tiger, because I hate to break the news to you, Cowboy, you're not Tiger. Really? No. I mean, if, if you want to put me on hold real quick and go look in the mirror, I, you can, I can prove that to you right now. <laughs> but, you know, you look at, you look at you know, Tiger, and then you look at Furyk. They, those are not model swings. I mean, those are completely different swings. Amen. And yet they still manage to control the ball flight. And what um, we have are slowly moving into as a as a teaching community, we're, we're thank God we're we're moving past the trend of of this whole machine like approach to golf and making everyone look the same and having this cookie cutter uh, method of of creating golf swings. We've we went through an era as uh, as a as a teaching community where we became swing freaks, and um, we we began teaching people uh, golf, how to swing a club as opposed to how to play the game. And I think we're starting to evolve a little bit now where things are getting more um, uh, broad in, in terms of we're not adhering to these, these absolutes where you, you can't, no, sir, I'm sorry, Joe, you can't do it that way. Well, I'm sorry. Let, let's, let's, let's let Joe do it that way, and let's just try to make Joe as good a player as he can. Because we can't always assume that every person that comes to us for help is, is trying to make the tour. And, you know, that we get varying uh, degrees of, of uh, ability and, and, and desire. And, uh, hell, I just worked with a guy uh, this morning who's all he, all he cares about is breaking 100. And that was my 9 o'clock lesson. My 10 o'clock lesson is, is signed up in October to go to Q school. So I'm talking about, I mean, I'm talking about two completely diametrically opposed approaches to the game uh, within an hour of each other. So if I don't know how to speak to each one of those people in, in terms that they can understand, then I'm not a very good teacher. And I would never want to be pigeonholed into a, a category where they say, oh, that's Seth guy, all he works with good players, all he works with his lefties, or all he works with is tall guys or whatever. I'm, I'm, I'm across the board. I'm going to try to take what you have and make the, the golf club send a better message to the golf ball at impact, period. And you talk about all the things that once you step onto the course and you've got the fairway with the trees in the side and the bunker in front of you and, and the wind conditions, um, of all those factors of things that can really mess with your brain, I think the most daunting is par, is that you have this standard that you're supposed to try to achieve. Yes, that's true, and that's something we've... we've and the bar is set very high. Par is not that easy. No, it's not. And a lot of players, I know myself, if I'm playing bogey golf, I'm okay. 
Well, if you if you think about it, if we if we try to infuse just a little bit of logic into this, which I know is rare in golf, <laughs> um, logic and golf don't don't generally mix very well. Um, I mean, all you got to do is look at look at the game itself. I mean, if you want to hit it right, you aim left. If you want to hit left, you aim right. If you want to hit it up, you swing down. If you want to hit it down, you swing up. If you don't want to hit it anywhere at all, swing as hard as you can. If you want to swing, if you want to hit it somewhere, swing easy. The fun of the game is to hit the ball. The object of the game is to hit the ball the least amount of times. So it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense, logically. Well, you got it all summed up. Thank you very much. Yeah, it was great th- talking yeah, to you. Sure, Bye-bye. Sure. But see, par, if, again, if you're an 18 handicap, then the first hole at your club, the scorecard reads par 4, but I'm sorry, for you it's a par 5 right. because you're an 18. So if you played it like a par 5, can you imagine how much pressure that would take off of you? If your first hole at the club's a 400-yard par 4 and you know that you've got three shots to get on the green and you want to give yourself two putts, you might not make every attempt to swing out of your shoes so you can drive it as far as you can, have an iron into the green, hit the, hit the green in regulation. So everyone should try to apply par based on their, their own handicap. Now, and that's what the handicap's all about, right? It is. It's to, it's to I, level the playing field. And it's, been, it's to level the playing field. But it's been used so frequently in, in betting for betting purposes and so, mm-hmm. so forth that I think people have lost track of what its true meaning is, and that is to create a golf course that can be uh, applied to every skill level. And, that, and, and create enjoyment for every skill level. Yes, it, myself as a professional, you as a 10, and we get Joe as a 20, and Pete as a 30, we can all uh, adjust the scorecard accordingly so that we're playing on a level, level field. But if Joe, the 30 handicap, approaches his, his, the first hole as a par 6, he's probably going to beat us because there's a good chance he's, he's going to play it with a little uh, less tension, and he might knock that putt in for five, and, and now he's one under, basically, on his handicap. So it, it does serve as a means of leveling the playing field, but it also should serve as a means of taking a little pressure off um, to, in, in the pursuit of what you brought up, which is old man par. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, why don't we take a little bit of a break here, and we come back, I want to talk to you about the common mistakes that you see, and I also want to talk about the mindset of putting. Again, here's your host for Golf Smarter, Fred Green. And we're back here with Seth Glasgow, who's the director of this, the director of that, and the director of that, which is the director of instruction for the Southpaw Golf Academy.com. Um, all over the place, and also the director of junior instruction for the Nicholas uh, Academies worldwide. Yes. Very impressive. Busy, busy fellow. You like to teach. I do. I do. I have lots of information to share. Awesome. I'm glad we're getting some of it here for free. Yes. (laughs) Well, wait a minute. Now, you didn't say anything about that. Well, you know, I'm just... You made the phone call, so I guess it isn't free. You have That's to pay right. for it. Um, uh, boy, all these different golf schools, uh, all these different ways, junior instruction, that's a whole different mindset in itself. Indeed it is. Approach to the game. And I, I know that I talk with players frequently when I'm out on the course, and we all kind of agree that I wish I would have taken this game up as a kid. Well, yeah. We wouldn't, because wouldn't you we wouldn't all. be thinking as hard, and it wouldn't be so difficult. Well, the thing about golf um, and, and, and moving from level to level in terms of uh, expertise is, is being comfortable in your, in your skin, comfortable in your surroundings. And what you find with junior players, and, and accomplished junior players, I should say, tournament-quality junior players, that by the time they get to high school, 
they've played in so many junior golf events that when they stick it in the ground for their first high school match, they're they're relaxed and they're in their element. It's just another another event. Then they play a zillion events in in high school, both at the, representing their school and in the summer they play junior golf. By the time they get to college, they've played in several hundred tournaments. So they're tournament tough, and and they know how to conduct themselves in competition. And those of us who started late and missed that um, are always second-guessing ourselves, and and we get out there and and we get out of our element and we start thinking about it. And as soon as you start thinking about it, you're you're in trouble. And and my one of my mentors, Bob Tosky, um, his great quote was, "As soon as you start trying, you stop playing." Mm-hmm. And this is a game that we're supposed to play, and you can't grind your way around the golf course. You need to play the game and count the numbers up at the end. But it's really hard to do that when your mind is on 714 swing thoughts. And you've been there. We've all been there. You get a couple under par and start thinking, oh, my gosh, is that really me under par? And you pull out your wallet and look at your ID, and yeah, that's me. And as soon as you start thinking about it, well, I've never been two under before. Well, you can pretty much count on a triple bogey on the next hole. Absolutely. Because you're going to tighten up and you're out of your element. And that's that's what this game's about is is getting comfortable in your skin and being able to to get out there and trust your your golf swing enough to let it perform. And it's not trusting the golf club; it's trusting your golf swing. Well, it's, I think it's a it's a combination of all of it. I think it's all encompassing. As soon as you put the club in your hands, that becomes a part of you. That's part of your swinging elements of your golf swing, and. Um, you have to be able to have uh, an understanding of all components and what each component's job is during the swing. And but I've heard so many people say, oh, I just can't hit my driver, but I'm great with my you know, three iron. Or, uh, boy, out of all my clubs, my five iron, I'm allergic to it and stuff. It's really not the club, right? Well, not, not necessarily, except for the fact that what you'll find is um, certain people's swing motions tend to lend themselves better to one type of club than another. Oh. Say a person with a very steep angle of attack into the ball is going to, to have no problem hitting wedges or nine irons because the, the shaft angle is very vertical. Uh, so the the angle of attack uh, can be steep. Now that angle of attack doesn't match very well with a driver. I mean, all you got to do is set a, a driver on the ground, set a wedge in the ground, and look at the angle of the club shaft. That driver, because it's 14 inches longer, is sitting at a at a at a lower angle to the ground, and it needs to be swung on the angle that it's sitting. So you'll find um, horses for courses. You'll find a, a guy that you play with one day. So yeah, he's great with his short irons. So he can't hit his long irons at all because he's so steep. Then the next guy uh, comes in real shallow into his hitting area, so his long clubs work well, and he can't hit a wedge. So it's you know there's definitely components in the swing that lend themselves to certain types of club more than the other. But to your to your point, you know ultimately you should feel as if the club is a part of you. And that uh, you're all basically uh, searching for the same goal, and that's to hit the ball to the target. Hmm. And let's talk about the meanest, nastiest club of all, especially when it comes to your brains, the putter. Mm, Yes, indeed. Why is that (laughs) so difficult? I mean, you could take three shots to go 530 yards, and it takes you four more to go eight yards. (laughs) Well, yeah, and... uh, I think the, the I'm going to have probably a, a three-headed monster here as a as a as an answer. First of all, it's putting is probably the least practiced aspect of the game um, because 
the inherent boredom that is is uh, attached to it. You can only stand on the putting green and lag balls up to the practice hole, tap them in, use a little plunger thingy to pull them out, pick the next hole. You can only do that so long until your body's on the putting green and your mind's 100 miles away. And um, one of my favorite things to teach is putting because uh, of that very reason. I have got some drills and some things, um, basically exercises, games that, that I get people to play that uh, keep them engaged in what they're doing and serve as a barometer as to whether they get better or not. For instance, if you walk out with three balls to the putting green and you lag them around the nine holes and you tap them in, you do that three times, you go get in your car and you sit down, you turn the car on and you sit there and you think, okay, did I get any better today? Well, how would you tell? How would you really know? How are you going to measure whether you improved, whether that 45 minutes you spent on the green was worthwhile? Well, if you use the drills that I employ, you have a way to measure. The better you get at these drills, the better you get at your putting. And the better you get at your putting skills, the lower your scores on the golf course. Now, that's, that's, the, that's uh, monster number one. The, the second one. But wait a minute. Wait, wait. I'm going to get nasty letters if I don't ask this question. Go. Give me one of the drills. Oh, the, uh, my favorite drill. Putting, basically all your short game shots, that your number one priority is distance control. Right. If you can't control the distance your ball rolls or flies when you're around the green, you're going to struggle. And I'd be willing to bet that every one of your listeners, if they close their eyes and thought real hard, as painful as it is to think about the last ten times you three-putted, I'd be willing to bet that nine out of ten of those times it was due to poor distance control as opposed to a poor, as opposed to a poor read. You can only misread a putt by a few feet one way or the other. I don't care if you're the worst green reader in the world. You're only going to make a three- or four-foot mistake on a read. If you hit it the right speed, the right distance, you've got a three- or four-footer coming in the side. It's the one where you think, oh, I got this thing red. It's going to break a foot left to right. I got this thing down. And you, and you hit it eight feet past the hole, and you miss the comebacker. That's when you struggle with, with three putts. It's, it's not being able to gauge the distance well enough. So the, my favorite distance control drill is what we call a ladder drill. And it's, it, you know, golf pros aren't that clever, Fred, or else we'd be doing something that's a little more lucrative and maybe, you know. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but you're outdoors every day. Sure, and maybe, you know, contributing to society a little bit more. But uh, the ladder <laughs> drill simply is you, you take three balls, you hit your first ball a distance. It really doesn't matter what distance the first ball goes, but you just want to have a try to to create a, a relationship between the the length of stroke and the, and how far the ball rolls. Your next putt then should roll past your first one. Then your third should roll past your second, and the distance between them should be consistent. So if you can step to the side and see that the distance between one, two, and three was equal, then you're you're getting good at your drill. Then what I do is I'll mark my starting spot with a coin or a T, and then I'll go out and I will cluster those balls back to the original spot. So you ladder out and you cluster back. You get the same. You get to do the same drill coming back the other way because each putt is a different distance from your starting spot, and you've got to try to match that distance. So it's a really good way to to get in and and figure out how much stroke equates into how much roll. Uh, and then we also, you know, of course, we have to plug in the whole um, variable of you know, the speed of the green and, and uphill, downhill, and the like. But if you think about it, if you ladder out and your ball is breaking slightly from right to left and it's slightly downhill, when you cluster back, you're going the opposite direction. So your, your, your break reverses and so does your uphill and downhill. So you're getting a good complement of, of every kind of conceivable putt, but your focus is simply on distance control. I remember when I was first starting to play, um, one of the questions that was asked 
um, by the instructor of this group that I was in, and I've always used it because I just find it amazing how people answer, is what's more important, distance or direction? And inevitably, a, a new player will always say direction. Sure. But it's so far from the truth. It's a mile from the truth. And if you, all you got to do is watch a tour event, and you see those guys and gals. They've, they've worked diligently on their distance control to the point where they'll sit behind a putt and they'll confer with their caddy and they'll they'll reach a conclusion as to the break. They'll pick their starting spot and they'll hit it. And basically, at that point, it's an educated guess. Right. And they'll hit their putt, and if they misread it a little bit, it's a little bit left or a little bit right. It's very rarely way short or way long. And if you start, if you raise you, if we can raise your awareness, we can raise your listeners' awareness to that. The next time they watch a tour event, they'll be amazed at how well tour players control their distance. And they eliminate wasted shots. A three-putt is a waste of a shot. Mm-hmm. And a four-putt is a waste of, here, let me do the math real quick, two shots. So we have uh, also embraced the concept of anything, uh, any putt that's longer than 15 or 20 feet, you should really look at it from the side. Hmm. Meaning you should create a triangle between the ball, the hole, and your eyes. And if you can step off to the side and look at the overall length of the putt, you'll have a good idea of, A, the overall length, which uh, distance and length are compatible. They're basically, if you consult uh, Monsieur Roger, you'll see both of those in the same, in the same category. So if, if you can look at the overall length, you look at it from the side, what you may very well pick up is a subtle upslope, downslope, a little hump, a little swale, something that you didn't necessarily see from behind the ball that would go into your your, your decision then based uh, on, on how much stroke you need. If you stand and look at a 25-foot putt from the side, but it's on a slow, steady incline, uh, is that going to putt like a 25-footer? If you put a 25-foot putt on a uh, stroke, excuse me, a 25-foot stroke on an uphill putt, it's not going to travel 25 feet, is it? No. So you've got to alter your length of stroke and, and speed of the ball based on the distance between your, your ball and the target and the topography, the elevation changes. Mm. Sometimes it's subtle enough to where you can't see it from the back. Take a quick look at it from the side. But for those of you who are worried about uh, taking too much time on the green, we have done the math. It takes less time to look at it from the side and two-putt than it does to not look at it from the side and four-putt. Mm. And should you always be aiming just beyond the hole? Or should you be aiming in the hole? Not a big fan of beyond the hole for a number of reasons, not the least of which... Um, you know, if you if you plan to run the ball two feet past, um, you 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 shrink the size of the hole. Hmm. Um, our our hero Jack Nicklaus used more of that that hole than any other player in the history of golf. If you look at some of his uh, highlights from his major wins, and he's got balls falling in the side door left and right. I mean, constantly because he really could gauge his speed. Um, so. Purposely trying to hit your ball past the hole. I'm not a big proponent of that. I'm not saying that it's wrong. There's a lot of teachers out there that absolutely swear by it, not the least of which Dave Pels. Um, uh, but what we have found is it tends to make the, the player a little bit more aggressive. And the, you know what Mr. Pels would probably agree with is nine out of ten people that are following his advice are developmental golfers, and they haven't really gotten uh, a real good handle on their mechanics or else they wouldn't be developmental golfers so i would like to to you know impress upon my my folks to get it to the hole and what part of the hole you look at will be dependent upon the the break Uh, for instance if you've got a left to right breaking putt where's the ball going to go into the hole if you make it 
Well, it's not going to go in the front edge. It's going to go in the left side. So put your eyes on the left side of the hole. If you've got a right-to-left breaker, put your eyes on the right edge. If you've got an uphill putt, look at the back edge. If you've got a downhill putt, look at the front edge. So you're, you're kind of telling yourself, um, you're giving a, sending a message to your senses through your eyes. This is where I want my ball to end up. And if you're a chronic uh, a person who who's, who's leaves, the, leaves the ball short chronically, then, yeah, you can look past the hole till you start hitting it past the hole, then start looking at the hole again. Hmm. Are you a big fan of when people are lining up the putt and they, they close one eye and hold their putter up in the air and make the line? I, I never got that. It's almost as if you've followed me around during my during my clinics because I've I've turned that, that to the to the students every time I've ever give a putting given a putting clinic I've asked does anybody hear plumb bobs anybody here close their eye and and, and then one guy or two guys or five guys will raise their hand I say okay Bob come on out here and explain to me what you're doing Fred not only have I never had anyone explain it to me well I've never had anybody actually even finish a sentence <laughs> in in attempting to they get well I try close this eye and I line I, I hang the the shaft of the putter is right up and I try to See if it's left. If if I close my and I just say stop. Okay, you're you're blathering now. Just go back and go back in line and let's let's talk about this. Um, I I don't. I've never understood it. There are people who swear by it, but I I don't teach it because I I can't explain it. I don't get it either. I don't. Let that. me ask you another question. Something that you were talking about um, when when you're on the practice putting green, which to me. I mean, listeners of this program are going to know, I'm always asking, is the practice putting green representative of the greens on your course? I think, to me, the best place to get any practice um, is on the practice putting green. Do you think it's a a mistake for us to focus on the holes on the practice putting green? I mean, you know, that's not what we should be practicing. We should be practicing distance and reading the the topography, as you say. Well, the only time I... I'm uh, an advocate of using the holes is on the short putt drills that, okay. I, that I give folks. Okay. I, I don't, I don't, I don't only sell them half half the deal. I'm not going to give someone a bunch of distance control drills that will really help them leave the ball two, three feet away from the hole each time, and not give them um, a few drills that would help them close the deal. Okay. So my short putt drills, absolutely, I'll, I'll, um, we'll use the hole then, and then what I also like to do with my competitive players is, is you know, you create a circuit, uh, but but you take one ball. And you go around the nine the nine holes that the, that that they've provided for you on the practice screen, and but you go through your routine each time. You don't just slap the ball up, tap it in, plunge it out, slap it. Up. Go through your routine. Read the putt. Set the you know aim the writing on the ball where you want to start the start the ball rolling. Um, go through your entire routine nine times and see what your average is. And if you can average under two, you're really on your way. And if we can eliminate a few three putts. You're really on your way because then uh, you start to see the you start to see it reflected in your scores. Um, but uh, if if you really if if you understand what your objectives are out there, then using the putting green, which going back to your original statement, if it's not indicative of the speed of the actual greens on the course, that's really not that big a deal because it's up to the player to adapt to the to the conditions anyway. We've all played it in successive days. You play one day at uh, course A and the greens are lightning fast, and the second day you play at course B and they're slow. Well, it doesn't take you too many, too many jabs at it to, to adjust based on the conditions under which you're playing. So if, you, if, you, if you're at your, your home course and the, and the practice green tends to be a little slower or a little faster than the, the greens in the course, it's still relative. 
you're still your ladder drill is still going to work because you're you're trying to control your speed on that particular green. Now, getting out on the first hole, you might have to adapt a little bit if the green's a little faster. You don't need it as much stroke, but uh, that's up to the player. And and our guys uh, and gals that we follow on tour have to do that every single week. The conditions they play under change every single week, and if they don't learn to adapt, they're going to struggle. And uh, we've got to do the same. Now, the the, the second head that I mentioned of this three-headed monster is, and why putting so difficult is because the target. If you, if you think about it, the only equitable thing in this game, in my humble opinion, is the fact that the the club that you're swinging, the target that that is affixed to it. Uh, matches meaning the hardest club in the in the bag to control is the driver would you agree yes okay but you've all you've got the largest target in which to hit you've got a left boundary and a right boundary but no front or back and you usually got 20 30 40 50 yards of 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 a field to to swing your 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 uh, club and hit your ball into then you get to the irons well now you're hitting into the green well you've got a left a right and a front and a back all of a sudden your target is smaller but Irons are easier to control than than your driver. Now, when you get to the putting green, what's the easiest club to control? Your putter. Well, what's the smallest target? The hole. So it's equitable. The hardest club in the bag has the largest target. The easiest club in the bag has the smallest target. But to your point, or to my point in, in answering your question, when you look when you're looking at that four and a quarter inch hole, if you're a, if you're a person who's struggling with your with your putting. It might not look like it's four and a quarter inches. You look at that thing and you say, man, that hole looks so small, I don't think my ball's going to fit into it. Well, that's not the best mindset to have. So we tend to put a little too much pressure on ourselves there because the target is indeed so small. Yeah, it's like when they're, when in baseball, when they're talking about pitchers throwing BBs up there or when the batter is hitting so well, it's, it looks like a grapefruit coming up Absolutely. to Absolutely. It's all, I mean, it's, it's a whole mental approach to, to, the, to what you're doing. And, and the guys, the great hitters in baseball, tell you that um, uh, some of them have struggled uh, with their batting until they realize that they got their eyes checked and that they, their vision was was being affected. So they get contacts or glasses, and now all of a sudden their hitting comes back. Well, their skills haven't changed. It's just they're seeing the ball better. So, um, you know, getting um, there's, uh, there's does a that have an impact on golfers? Well, it does, and I think there's a great product out there available. It's uh, the the hole reducer that you can buy. Um, any, in several places uh, online, uh, golf around the world, I think, uh, carries it. But it's, uh, it's, it's four and a quarter inches around um, on the perimeter. But then when you slide it into the hole, it reduces the hole by an inch and a half. So you, put, you slide that into a, a hole on your practice putting green at home uh, or at your home course, and you practice hitting putts to it. Well, if you can get uh, comfortable hitting to a, a hole that's only three inches around, then when you pull that hole reducer out, that the, the actual hole looks like a trash can. So mentally, you're more comfortable and relaxed because you don't feel like your target is so small and the task is so daunting. You just you kind of relax a little bit and you make a better stroke. Fabulous. You know, when uh, before we started, I made some notes about things I wanted to discuss with you, and I had about a half page of notes here. My problem is now I have about two pages of notes of things I want to discuss with you. Right, would you come back and spend more time with us at another time? Yeah, I think we might have to do this again. Oh, yeah. I would love it. I would love it. So before we go, let me ask you, because I know this could be a quick one. As a golfer, what's the best advice you've ever received? The best advice I've ever received. As a golfer, I was 
Um, and can I can I make this in a in a t- small little story? I would love story. Okay. I love I story. Played Tell me a story. Here, okay, lay down. Okay, fine. Okay, <laughs> I pl- I was playing Spyglass Hill up in Monterey with um, Phil Blackmar, who is a 19-year tour veteran, uh, three-time winner out there, and just an absolute genius uh, as it pertains to the golf swing and, and and golf itself. And we played the front nine, and I shot 42. And I wasn't very pleased with my performance. Now, there's, you know, it's all relative. I guess there's folks out there thinking I'd give anything to shoot 42 on the front nine at Spyglass. But uh, with the amount of betting that was going on and the level of competition, uh, I was uh, pulling up the rear, as you could probably imagine. Well, at the turn, Phil pulls me aside and he says, Listen, pal, you got the teacher's disease, and I'm going to cure you right now. And I said, Okay. He says, Y'all, when you're teaching golf, everything takes place from the club sitting behind the ball to the top of the backswing, back down to the impact position. Everything you teach is backswing, top of backswing, change of direction, impact. You don't play golf in your backswing, pal. You play golf from the ball to the, to the target. You're, you got yourself in your teacher's mindset. So do me a favor. On the back nine, do one thing for me. Stand behind your ball before each shot. Pick your intermediate target. Make sure it's no more than a foot in front of your ball. When you stand over your ball, all I want you to say to yourself is, I want to hit my ball hard, and I want to hit it right over that spot. And I don't want any other thought to pass through your mind. Well, I shot 34 on the back because I never once thought about a position in my swing. I never once thought about my weight shift, my hip turn, my shoulder turn, my, my grip pressure. I never thought about anything other than putting the ball into the target area. And my mind became so free, and I became so relaxed, that all the stuff that I had done prior to that on the practice tee to develop a repeating golf swing started to, started to happen. And what teachers do, and I can, of course I can not speaking for anybody else out there but, the, but this faction, um, teachers and or swing freaks cannot get their mind out of their backswing long enough to play the dang game. And you cannot, the, the, the golf course is not 18 separate practice areas. Once you get out there and stick it in the ground the first tee, it's time to play. And all that developmental stuff, uh, it's too late to change it. So you play with the swing you have that day. And that is literally the best advice I've ever had because uh, it took me out of that mechanical mindset that we all find ourselves falling into at times, and it put me into more of an athletic mindset, which is simply put the ball in the target area, period. Well, that's phenomenal. Do you even, you you talked earlier about as soon as you stop trying, you start playing. Right. Bob Tosky quote. So it all kind of comes back. Yeah. That is great advice and a fascinating story. I love stories like that. Well, thank you. Thank I have a million of them. Well, then you're just going to have to come back and tell us more stories. We'll do the podcast with Seth Glasgow. Sounds it's, great. It's the great Seth Glasgow show. <laughs> Seth, thank you so much for spending this time with us today. It was my pleasure. Anytime. Anytime. <laughs> 